0: Well, good morning. Once more, please open with me in your copy of the scriptures to Matthew chapter two. Here we find ourselves on the seventh day of Christmas there reflected on the front of your bulletin. Remember that on the liturgical calendar, which to be fair and explicit, we do not follow woodenly like uh, some other traditions. But you have Advent coming of Christ and then Christmas you have Christmas Day, and then you have 12 days of Christmas. At the end of the 12 days of Christmas, you have Epiphany, a word that means a- a- appearing, revealing, and it commemorates, it celebrates the visit of the Magi after the birth of Christ, the wise men. Don't know exactly how long after, but we certainly know that you know, that this visit was before he was two years old. This is often kind of lumped in with the Christmas narrative. But the reality is the Magi came later. They came later. And so when you see the Magi depicted in the nativity scenes in evangelical culture, I'm sorry, just not, just just not how, just not how it happened. And so while we are on the seventh day of Christmas, I would like to end the year with a sermon that is epiphany specific and start the year afresh with 2 John. And so if you think it sounds a little bit disjointed to preach an epiphany sermon on the seventh day of Christmas, you're right. But that's OK. You're right. But that's OK. And, and just like last week, I want to encourage you to not take notes, not take notes, at least in, if you want to take notes a little bit in the application section, that's fine. But I just want you to listen to this remarkable story once more with a fresh set of ears. Would you do that with me this morning? You already heard it read. So let's walk through it together. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, Magoi in the Greek, from the east came, to Jerusalem. So in the first verse, we're introduced to Herod, this half Jew, half Edomite, Edomites being the descendant of Esau. He's the client king of the Jewish people. He's kind of the puppet king of Caesar Augustus, who actually hated him and said famously that he would much rather be his dog than his son. That's who we're talking about here. Uh, shortly after Jesus's birth, these Wise men, these magi, come from the east. We don't know exactly where from, likely Persia, but it just we just don't know. They came from the east. And so, by the way, in the Christmas song, the star doesn't rise in the east or they would end up in China, okay? They come from the east, um, and they come westward. They come westward to Jerusalem. Now, these were not a bunch of, when you hear wise men, the English translation of Magoi there. You know, don't don't think of these navel-gazing intellectuals or something. This is not a bunch of Aristotles. Think of something like a very influential member of a royal court. Something like the combination of a magician, an astrologer, astronomer, and, and pagan theologian. Like all four of those things wrapped into one doing divination and trying to... Do, well... Divine and discerned things in their own very broken way. These people had clout. This would have been a big deal. And so when they show up, we can understand the reaction. They've come from the east, it's not clear exactly from where, to Jerusalem saying this. Maybe they're knocking on doors. Maybe they're chanting out loud. Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Whoa! This is intense. Okay, so remember, not a bunch of Confuciuses on on donkeys. Major players in a pagan court, they would have had an entourage. They would have had people carrying their stuff. They would have had people carrying all the gifts that we're going to hear about later. These animals. This would have been a scene. You would have thought Jerusalem was having a parade or something if you looked out your door. And they're asking about the king of the Jews. And you can just imagine someone saying, oh, I know, his, uh, his name's Herod. You know, he lives, he lives right down there. And you can, you can see them saying, you see all of this stuff? Yeah, none of that's for him. None of that's for him. No nope, no nope, no nope. there is someone and the grammar makes this very clear who has been born king of the jews that is to say the rightful king of the jews there's there's actually someone who's been born king which implies that Herod is what an impostor how on earth did they come up on this information how on earth did they come up on this information at the very least some combination of their astronomy and their astrology somehow signaled to them that the king had been born indicated by this rising star which apparently was something that you know often was often thought to denote the the birth of a prominent person however it happened through their broken system their divination their astrology their zodiac signs whatever it is They were able to discern through the providence of God that the king of the Jews had been born. But they didn't just come to honor this king. You know, when the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon, also from the east, she brought treasures, but she didn't come to worship him. These folks have come to worship whoever it is here that has been born king of the Jews. I only imagine this idea of worship. I mean, sure, the imperial cult was one thing. Emperor worship was, was a thing. But these folks didn't show up to worship the emperor. And there was certainly no puppet king worship theology going on. The client king... Of the Jews' worship, they showed up to worship someone who was very, very different. And so all of that helps us make sense of verse 3. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. So the troubled here, it's too mild of a translation, something like deeply distressed or less formal. He was freaking out. And this was not new, because unfortunately, toward the end of his life, he became a very paranoid man and thought people were out to get him. So much so that he executed his own, his favorite wife, and both of his sons from his favorite wife. Paranoid man. He thought people were coming after him. So you could only imagine what he was feeling when he heard secondhand at this point to all appearances that there had been a ton of there have been some folks that have shown up, some influential folks, shown up looking for the king of the Jews. But this king was already losing it. He was already paranoid. And when you get to this level, so does everyone else, because everyone's afraid of a loose cannon. Oh, no. What's he going to do? People in Jerusalem knew what he could do. We're going You get a tragic example of what he does a little bit later in the chapter, don't you? Man's off his rocker. He's evil. And so Herod, raised culturally a Jew, Jewish mom, Edomite father, pretending to be a Jew over the course of his career, to be the the king of the, the Jewish people there, decides that he might actually need to learn some theology after all. So he asks, he assembles, all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. And he has inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He isn't familiar enough with the scriptures to know the answer to the question, but he did know enough to realize in a, a very important detail that no one else supplies him in this narrative. Did you catch it when you when I read it through? He says. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Well, no one said anything about a Christ yet. No one has said anything about a Christ. You got a bunch of pagans who showed up to worship the king of the Jews. but see Herod, even as a bad Jew, knows enough to put something together here. He knows that there is one coming. doesn't live for him, doesn't honor him, but he knows the Messiah, the Anointed One. He knows enough about the Jewish hope to connect the fact that these folks are coming to honor the King of the Jews. And notice, that's how he goes and he couches his question. He doesn't go ask the chief scribes and the priests uh, about the King of the Jews. No, 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 he would never do that. That would be political suicide for him. No, he went and asked his question about the Christ. He doesn't, of course, know the answer whether Christ is going to be born. So he gets the folks who do. Time for the Bible Bowl. One question, where is he going to be born? And they knew, of course, and they told him largely out of Micah chapter 5 that we heard read in our first scripture reading. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is, so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's a paraphrase and it doesn't only pull from Micah chapter 5. But it largely does. How interesting. Bethlehem. Hey, just right down the road. I mean, right next to Jerusalem. Now Herod might not have been a good theologian or a faithful Jew, but he was a shrewd man. He was a shrewd politician, and after he heard all this, he says, it's time for me to make contact with these folks who have come from the East. To all appearances yet, he hasn't done so, but now he seeks his own audience with these foreign visitors he summons the wise men, verse 7, secretly, very very key, secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he's trying to understand when exactly this king was born, and so he can understand how old this king is, how viable he is, so he can put into play a very wicked plan that comes later. But it was very critical that this was done quietly or secretly because he couldn't risk to publicly acknowledge that there is a king of the Jews other than himself. So he does it quietly. He has them in for a private audience. And then it is Herod himself who actually gives them insider information From his theologians. He says, he sent them to Bethlehem. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He says, duplicitously, of course. Hey, this is great. I've got a plan. Y'all go figure out where he is. Come on back. Report to me, because I want to worship the king of uh, uh, the. Uh, <clears throat> I want to worship this person who has been born as well. The king of the Jews. And so, after listening to the king and getting a tip from him there, they went on their way, verse 9, "...and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was." And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So, to all appearances, the star that they initially saw had, had disappeared." Okay, I mean, it had led them, after all, remember, the star led them to Jerusalem, not Bethlehem, initially. They ended up in Jerusalem. Okay? And, to all, and, and it was Herod who said, he didn't just say, hey, keep following your star. It was, it was Herod who pointed them in, der, in the direction of Bethlehem. There's no, uh, th- there is no suggestion that, the, uh, that there would be the same star guiding them, and yet especially with this kind of laser, laser precision. It's not clear that it's the exact same thing, or at least not the exact same thing manifested in the same way. There, are a ton of, there have been a ton of attempts, uh, unsurprisingly, to explain this star. What exactly is going on with this star? Is it a star? Popular suggestion is an angel. It appeared to them to be a star, but in fact was an angel. Here's the truth. We just don't know. We have no idea. Here's what we do know. We know that it was something supernatural. We know that no star, no, or no orb of light, no nothing moves like this naturally. And we also know that it wasn't millions of miles away. In other words, from their perspective, and they had a different understanding of the cosmos, it wasn't a star that was stuck up in the sky and they were trying to line up this house. You know, they weren't like, I think it's the next one. You know, the idea, the idea is that the, the star comes and makes it manifestly clear where this child is, kind of hovering as it were over a particular house with great clarity. It says, when they saw this, which to all appearances, again, they weren't expecting to reappear, they rejoiced with great joy. And this is such, such an incredible, this is kind of an over-the-top description of how excited these people were. That there had been something that would lead them to the king of the Jews. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And so finally, this this star, or or to what all appearances, appears as a star, comes to rest over this house, and then here was the moment. This was it. This is the moment. In verse 11, the entourage arrives. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down. It's the word prostrate. It's falling down on your face. They fell down and they worshipped this infant. I'll tell you what if they thought a bunch of shepherds showing up on night one was a shock, there would have been no words for this. Just like in Jerusalem. In fact, even more so, Jerusalem is a way much, much more affluent and far more well-known town. Bethlehem, this dinky town, to have this kind of presence come through the town. I mean, you would have been standing outside your door going, what on earth is going on down the road? What on earth is going on? And so along with their gift bringing and what was characteristic of paying honor in the East, it's not, a, it's not a Greek practice, it's not a Roman practice, they again, they fall down on their faces, prostrate in worship. It's this ultimate symbol of submission. This ultimate symbol of honor. And then they say the word and all of their stuff is unloaded. All of these gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. it text mentions three kinds of gifts, not to be confused with three magi, three wise men. We have no idea how many wise men there were. Okay? The We Three Kings of Orient Our Song presupposes kind of like every wise man had a box of stuff that they were holding, and there was three gifts, and therefore three magi. That's just not it at all. They brought three kinds of goods, and they could have brought more. It doesn't say that. But we don't have any idea how many of the magi there were. And if you thought that you got a lot of gifts at one of your baby showers, <laughs> you have no idea what this was like. Okay? This would have padded the bank account, to put it mildly. So, after they've given their gifts to this king, after they've fallen down before an infant and in worshipped, it's time to head back to Herod so he can come do the same thing, except not. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is a remarkable story. It leaves us with as many questions as answers, although just to be clear, the questions are not nearly as important as the answers how did these guys know the star was the king of the Jews specifically, even if it was commonly thought that a star rising meant a prominent person was born? How did they know it was the king of the Jews? Was it Daniel's witness in Persia that had been passed down? I don't know. Had they heard about the Messiah, king of the Jews? Why did the star only take them to Jerusalem initially? It seems like that the only thing that did was alert Herod. How come a star didn't take them to Bethlehem? Why did they come afterwards instead of on the night he was born? We're not told. Where is Joseph in this narrative? We're not told. How are we to make sense of this star that came to rest over the house? We don't really know exactly what it was. Did the the theology of these magi change forever? They, They became Christians as they went back to wherever they were. Is that what happened to them? Did they changed their perf- we have no idea. We just don't know. But taken in larger context, particularly in the book of Matthew, this is a story that provides contrasts and bookends that are remarkable. For example, both Joseph and Herod were committed to doing things quietly same greek word joseph being a just man was to was going to quietly divorce mary when he found out she was pregnant herod sought an audience quietly with these magi one quiet desire was understandable and even compassionate even if it was off base and was prevented by a dream. The other was selfish and irrational and murderous and was spoiled by a dream. In light of the visit of these Easterners, Matthew's Gospel, as a result, has the Gentiles, the nations, at the very beginning of the story, bringing riches in and paying homage to the king of Israel, and at the end of the story, with a commission to go to all the nations, the Gentiles, so that they could embrace the same posture before Jesus that the Magi did years before. Jesus is only called the king of the Jews, ironically, by pagans. Israel, the Israelites referred to king of Israel But it's hard to miss that as he is called the king of the Jews at the very beginning, it would be another pagan ruler, Pontius Pilate, who would call him the king of the Jews on a sign above his cross at his death. Herod politicked his way to being king. But the story centers around one who did not ascend to the throne. Nobody died. He was born king born king the child of the promises the savior of the world and Herod himself having a father descendant descended from Esau failed once more to do what his ancestors had tried to do for years and that is snuff out the descendants of Jacob his brother the struggle between the Edomites and the Jews bleeds over into the New Testament. Into this astonishing picture we have here. But his plan is foiled because it is in this descendant of Jacob that all the promises of God would be yes and amen. What do we take away from this? What do we take away from this story, this narrative in particular? Let me give you five takeaways. Five takeaways. The first is that God reveals himself at different levels and for different reasons to whom he sovereignly chooses. Think about the levels and degrees of revelation present in this whole story. None of them are the same, it seems. Mary and Joseph, they got a certain level of revelation about what's going on. The shepherds, we heard about last week. The wise men, the magi, they got some kind of revelation. The folks who heard the announcement in Jerusalem as they were going around, they got some kind of revelation about the king of the Jews. The folks in Persia who were told why all these people, these wise men, were packing up their stuff and heading out, they were told something by the people looking at the stars. It even? Some kind of revelation? Clearly. But equally clearly, not everyone got the same level of revelation, did they? And that is the prerogative of God. That is the prerogative of a sovereign God who could have given anyone any of the revelations that he wanted to. But God reveals Himself at different levels and for different reasons to whom He sovereignly chooses. We have, to, we have to come to terms with that. We have to accept that. That God is sovereign and man is responsible. That's the first thing. Second thing we see here to take away is that God is not opposed to using misguided methods to accomplish his purposes. Whatever you make of the origin, their origin, the, mag- the Magi were practicing some kind of astrology, some kind of what we would, I hope you would call today some wacky thing that you're embarrassed that your family member shares on social media about their zodiac sign, something ridiculous about discerning life based on the stars. Probably, most likely, Zoroastrianism or something like it. But here's the thing. They ended up in Jerusalem. They knew that there was a king of the Jews that had been born. God was content to reveal Himself inside a very broken, false religion, false worldview, poor methodology. It was. There's no way around it. And so that should give us both hope and pause when we consider how God may choose to meet people caught up in worldviews and social theories and empty philosophies not grounded in truth. Apparently, God can and does work in those very things to direct people towards worshiping Jesus. Now, just to be very clear... This is not to be confused with saying that people can remain in falsehood, in a false worldview, in a false religion, and still know Christ. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that God can use backward reasoning and backward practices and His sovereignty to lead people out of falsehood and into truth. Because God is not opposed to using misguided methods to accomplish truth. His purposes. Number two. Number three. Particularly as a gospel written primarily to Jewish people. Someone greater than Moses is here. Who demands a response. This king demands a response. As part of the prototypical event that. Largely defined the people of Israel as a nation. The exodus. As kind of the antecedent to that, Moses and Aaron, representing God, opposed another king. Another tyrant named Pharaoh. Pharaoh and his magicians have an incredible showdown with Moses and Aaron. But the behavior of these magi, who would have likely served in a very similar kind of court... Not saying they did the exact same things, but this is the kind of court they would have been in. oh their behavior is remarkably different. In t- instead of turning their staffs into serpents in opposition to God, they are bowing down before the one who would crush the head of the serpent in worship of God. and that's because this king demands a response even from people far away, even from Gentiles, even from people hundreds and thousands perhaps, in some cases miles away. Understanding who Jesus is motivates action. Once you truly grasp who Jesus is, just like we have learned coming out of 1 John, you truly grasp who Jesus is, it motivates action. It is not intellectually or morally responsible to understand the claims of Jesus and the implications of Jesus as king, and just say, okay, it's time to move along. These magi knew it. And as we read passages like this, we're reminded of that as well. That there is someone greater than Moses who has come. And he demands a response. Number four is that honoring Jesus will guarantee us inconvenience. Talk about inconvenience. First, got to figure out what the star was. Then they got to pack all their stuff up. They're traveling from the east. Cold calling there in Jerusalem. Causing a ruckus. Undermining the legitimacy of Herod. Then disobeying the resident king having to figure out a way back to their land without that isn't the way that they came. Certainly no GPS. Horribly inconvenient. But it was worth it. And I would suggest that if your faith is never an inconvenience or perhaps your M.O. is finding the least inconvenient way to follow Jesus, then maybe you should reconsider who he is exactly. Because honoring and worshiping God as we should will guarantee, I promise you, worshiping and honoring and following Jesus as we should will guarantee inconvenience And it may guarantee for some of us that we are to go way out of our way, way out of our comfort zone, way far away from things that we know for the sake of faithfulness. Honoring Jesus will guarantee us inconvenience. So we shouldn't be about seeking the least inconvenient way to follow Jesus. That's a very bad way to do the Christian life. Can I just tell you? Finally, the culmination of all these things, really, that Jesus is worthy of lavish praise and sacrifice. You know, there has been a lot made of each gift symbolizing things. Here's what you really need to know. These gifts would have been terrible baby shower presents. But they are fitting gifts for royalty. They are fitting gifts for royalty and even more fitting in the providence of God, if you didn't put the connect the dots here, it would be foreign golden goods that would shortly finance an extended stay in Egypt as they fled from Herod because you can't take the, the woodworking shop with you. The Magi hauled a bunch of gold and aromatics to a baby, baby in Bethlehem by discerning things from the stars because they knew that Jesus was worthy of lavish praise and sacrifice. Even right there at the beginning. And we will see at the end of Jesus' life something very similar. Where a woman takes some very expensive aromatics. Some perfume. And washes his feet as Jesus himself says that she's preparing him for burial. There is no such thing as over the top for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, is there? And so, here we have it. The story of the Magi visiting Christ. And so, the application of the application... Is this, is just how will you respond to this king who has now not only been born, but has died an atoning death for sin, has been raised from the dead, who calls us to repent and believe the promise of eternal life, who's ruling until all things are placed under his feet? We happen to find ourselves on the eve of a new year. What is one concrete way? And I'm not saying you have to limit it to one. But let me just challenge you. What's one concrete way? Not do better. That's not concrete. Not try harder. That's not concrete. What's one concrete way that you can seek to respond to and pursue Christ in 2024 that you didn't do in 2023? Just one one concrete thing. That's, That's realistic, right? Everyone can do one concrete thing. That's my challenge. To respond to and pursue Christ 2024 that is different than in 2023. Mine is going to be changing up how I do my scripture memory. What's yours? Share it with me if you want to. What goal might you set? Who can you tell about it? For accountability's sake. But don't make the mistake of hearing about this king. Who he is, what he's done, and not responding, not taking action. The story of the Magi And the person of Christ simply hasn't left us that option. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We pray that you would help us honor him as such with our lives, with our families, with our work ethic, the way we keep our own hearts the purity of our thoughts. Would you work in us in this year to mold and to craft us further into the image of Christ that is being renewed in us? Lord, my prayer for every single person in this room is that no one would coast in 2024, that no one would drift, that no one would be okay with just kind of mailing it in based on past Christian effort. That apathy would be far, far from our church. That we would be a people who show our love for Christ by our action. Help us, O oh Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.